Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman. I'm joined this evening by my special guest, Ellie Nash, and we're going to be talking about being broken, torn apart and broken. The topic tonight is about finding meaning in a shattered life. Ellie, welcome. Thank you for having me, Dove. Excited to be here. Ellie, you were on the show uh, maybe two or three months ago, and it was a topic that was probably easier than tonight's. We were talking about whether material and spiritual life are compatible, and uh, I thought that was a pretty profound topic. But we're really going to get into it tonight and talk. We've each gone through experiences of feeling like our life has gone to pieces and talk about how that can be transformative, and how it can risk not be not being as well. I'll give a little intro to our listeners, Ellie, and you. Yeah, you're, I consider you a close friend, and I'm, I'm always impressed when I see your, your bio in black and white. Uh, you are the founder and CEO of JEG & Sons. There's a nice story behind the name of your company, a consumer electronics company. You started in 2006. You've grown it to... A whole bunch of revenue, I'll mention the number on the air, <laughs> and uh, you service retail giants uh, across the country, and you have hundreds of employees over time. I know you, Ellie, through the nonprofit world. We sat on the board of a Jewish day school called Lamplighter's Yeshiva, which I know we both cared about a lot uh, together for years, and you were on the board, I think you still are on the board of JCW, Jewish Community Watch, which is a leading organization in the fight against child sexual abuse. And you're also an advisor for Urban Promise Miami, an after-school program servicing Little Havana, which I think is cool. Ellie, we're going to be talking about the secrets that you divulge now uh, years ago, but for many, many years you held secret the details of your own childhood sexual abuse and your own addiction to pornography as an adult and you now empower others to speak up through your personal relationships and organizationally through the, or the organization you co-founded Mic Drop, a public speaking training program that puts emphasis on people recovering from trauma and who originally couldn't have imagined telling their innermost story and I can attest to that because you encouraged me over a year ago to tell my innermost story of pain, and that ultimately led to me being on this show each week. So thank you for setting me on that phase of my life journey, Ellie. You live in Miami, Florida with your wife, Freda, and your beautiful three children. And I, lo I love this fact. You know, I actually didn't know this, Ellie, until I got your, your formal bio today, that you have a rabbinical degree. Um, <laughs> you, you don't, so I'm now going to start calling you Reb Ellie. Um, you don't have other diplomas, which you believe is an asset, but not everyone agrees. I actually agree that that's an asset. And I, and I love this, uh, final point in your, on your bio that you still, despite everything I've just said about mic drop and you encouraging others to empower and break through, um, their, 
their their pain and get on the path to recovery and healing through speaking out, you still have a fear of public speaking, but you do it anyway. So thanks for breaking through that fear again tonight. I appreciate you having me. I would love to um, I actually start with a question for you, if you're okay. Uh-oh. Go ahead. <laughs> so you had said how the mic drop itself led to uh, you starting this radio show, and I'd love to hear uh, the link. As I, I understand it conceptually and that I've seen people go through a process of sharing their story and then going on to actualize maybe in a different area of their life, but I'd love to hear the bridge for you between those two points, and I think your listeners as well, being that it's this radio show that we're talking about. How did telling your innermost story lead to that? Well, maybe to give our listeners a little bit of context, Mic Drop was the channel, but you were the catalytic driver in that I had opened up with you about, as I have with, with listeners previously on episodes of Equal Footing, but only because, again, that started over a year ago with your encouragement. I had opened up about my experience uh, in prison. I was in a prison for about 10 and a half months and and during that time was subject to physical and sexual abuse and it was life-shattering. We refer to that in the title of this of this episode and I had enormous almost like a huge knot of pain and shame and confusion and self-loathing and and um anger at God and a whole series of, of things are wrapped up in, in a ball and like a, almost, like I, the best way for me to describe it is like an inner knot. And it was wrapped up in anger about even, you know, the, the, the legal case itself and my protestation of my innocence and my feeling of why was this happening and all sorts of, of, of levels to it. And, uh, you encouraged me to start, you know, to, to start the unraveling process and, of that knot in starting by just talking about it. And I ended up, it took many months. I don't know if you remember, you were probably, you were, you were at me on that for, I don't know, maybe six to nine months. And finally I ended up opening up completely about my experience in prison, the near death experience, the, uh, how the experience of, uh, being being violated and kind of being brought completely both literally and figuratively to my knees, but also, um, you know, some of the discovery process that came out of that in terms of kind of getting to the very essence of who I was and not, to, you know, kind of depending on my, the story of, of, of my life narrative prior. And that uh, it was totally freeing. It was, I did it in in front of about, I don't know, maybe 80 or 100 friends and family members. And it was also, you know, put up on YouTube, so it became, you know, public. And having it all out there allowed me to begin to repair um, relationships with, first of all, with myself um, and relationships with others and actually started in in a, a ball rolling around um, around being open about other things that had happened to me in my life or um, transgressions even that I had in my life 
had against others and not never you know resolved and ultimately Ellie that led to me being open to a show like this where I would field a question like the one you just gave and be open to talking about it and uh, I don't you know don't always talk on the show about that particular experience but uh, that was kind of uh, the the bridge if you will so in a in a sense the the knot of shame and ball that sat there prevented you from wanting from from maybe agreeing to say okay I'm going to sit on a radio show when I'm exposed in some way but there's always this curveball that can come out of the wings and hit you in the head and now you've put the curveball out so it, it it loses its power there's much less surprises that can come about because the most difficult issues challenges you've already discussed is that, that's is that how you would phrase it as well? I think that's accurate. I think when you take your most terrible fear, uh, I mean, one of the one of the thinkers that's that's helped me along this journey is a, a Buddhist named um, Pema Chodron, and some people may have read her book, When Things Fall Apart, and she talks about fear uh, being uh, a friend, and it's a universal experience for all living things to experience fear, but... Uh, the f- turning turning the fear of talking about it and the fear of unraveling the knot into something that I was like diving into and making a friend um, was yeah it took it, it took away its its power as an enemy I guess is what I'm trying to say so I actually you know you and I have talked about this even about getting on the air and I'm going to give out our number in a moment so others can also get through their fear is that you know anytime I'm feeling nervous about getting on the air and getting into the topic of an episode, I know that I need to do it. And you and I think share some of that. Uh, and I don't know how your experience has been. It's ha- probably hard for you to find something that you're afraid to talk about anymore because you've, you've been diving into that fear as an example for many years for, for many others. But is it true for you? I mean, do you, does that, does that still ring true on your side? Well, it's certainly much more profound for me in person. Um, Today, I've, I've been doing a fair amount of B-style since the pandemic where I'm talking virtually, and I don't typically feel the nerves, but um, one in which I did, I was at my, uh, my brother-in-law, the rabbi of the synagogue, and he invited me for Rosh Hashanah, and there weren't too many people there. Maybe 30 or 40 people had come to services, and he asked me if I'd get up and speak uh, while, you know, at a portion of, of the prayer, and I was surprised at how nervous I, I was, and there's a part of me that knows that yeah, I have this fear, this fear of speaking, and it's going to come up. But there's also this part of me that's surprised each time I do it. Uh, maybe because I don't know if you've experienced this, but when there's that fear of public speaking, it kind of lives there in the first few minutes of a talk, and afterwards a groove usually sets in and it dissipates. So my head tells me the next time, oh maybe, maybe I'll pick up from there when I get up in front of a room full of people a week later or a month later because when I, when I ended the speech, I wasn't nervous speaking. And that's not usually the case. I usually pick up where I started the last time, which is a little bit of nerves. But in a lot of ways, I think it, uh, it focuses. It, it, there's a reason. There's, a, there's definitely a biological reason for the nerves before 
speaking. I agree. I think it's like fight or flight. And you describe that after the first few minutes, your your psyche knows that you're in the fight, right? You didn't flee off the stage or hang up on the on the show. <laughs> so you're in it. So you kind of some uh, something else kicks in. Our number to call in and participate in this discussion about being broken open, finding meaning in a shattered life. This is a raw discussion with my wonderful guest, Ellie Nash, successful entrepreneur, philanthropist, survivor of childhood abuse, survivor of porn addiction, and believer in the extraordinary healing power of telling your innermost story. Participate with us, 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. You don't have to say your name. You can participate anonymously if you prefer. You can also text a question anonymously if you're shy about being on the air to 917-428-4062. That's 917-428-4062 to text in a question. Ellie, before we go to our first break, let's, for those listeners that don't know your story, what was, how was your life shattered in a nutshell? When were you brought to your knees? I often talk about the, the abuse, uh, which, as I was first addressing, addressing it, I saw that as my life-shattering moment. And I'm curious if this will resonate with you or not. Our stories are very different, of course. When I first looked at my story, I saw the life-shattering moment as the abuse itself. In this, almost as if the, the narrative in my head kind of went like this. Here was a boy with a perfect childhood, right, singing and going merrily along until some monstrosity came in and interrupted it by abusing me. And when I never dug into the narrative, that lie, that falsity was able to exist. But as I dug into the narrative, it's unclear why that boy goes back repeatedly. It's, un- it's unclear why that boy doesn't tell mom or dad. Right. It's unclear why that boy doesn't fight back or ask for help or do any of the things that we're, we should do biologically when a threat um, presents itself, which is A, assert oneself against the threat, B, fight back against the threat, one is, hey, stop doing what you're doing, B, fight back, or C, ask for help. Those are the normal responses to it. And when I tease it apart more and more, I saw that this was one of many factors going on at the time, Uh, but it was, it's soul-crushing. Sexual abuse is soul-crushing. For those who've experienced it, it, uh, it leaves one with a feeling of, uh, shame that a few other things do. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, abuse is, destroys people. I, I don't know that if a, if a child if was beat up one time and there wasn't like a, a missing limb or something that left an actual physical mark that left itself for, for 20, 30 years, that much would happen to them. They'd be okay. There wouldn't be a major trauma from being beat up one time. But if someone is raped one time, that's all it takes. It can really, it can affect someone in a very real and deep way. And that shame sat with me for years and years and years, not wanting to go there, not wanting it to be brought up, not wanting to get too close to people for fear that this secret would be found out about me. And finally, in my mid-20s, about 10 years ago, I 
went into therapy for business-related issues, ironically, and all of this came gushing forward. And if I, the, 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 the falling apart, I look at it in two ways, was in the childhood, but then again when I started addressing it as an adult. Like, both of those were, were crushing. That feeling of, of crushing loss or unendurable pain is is present in in so many different experiences in life and I, I don't want both Ellie and I have lived through sexual abuse at ext, under extremely different circumstances and extremely different points in life uh, however I think you know we haven't we haven't got into the other areas as well where our life has felt shattered at, at times so I, I want to encourage listeners to connect also to uh, other areas that are sometimes not, I think, talked about enough when it comes to um, dealing with trauma and opening up about your innermost story. Divorce can be incredibly uh, traumatic. Heartbreak is traumatic. Loss of loved ones. So many people have gone through that in the in this period of the pandemic. Um, going through the experience of terminal illness with a loved one, where there's a drawn out process of Anger, reconciliation, grieving, acceptance, etc. Um, these are these are all also uh, aspects of 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 being shattered and and part of our journey, as Joseph Campbell would call our our our, our hero's journey. And we'll talk about that a little bit after the break. We'll be right back with equal footing. I'm here with my guest Ellie Nash, successful entrepreneur philanthropist and believer in the healing power of telling your innermost story. We'll be right back. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel Equal Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. Hi, you're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman. I'm here with my guest, Ellie Nash. We're talking about being broken open, finding meaning in a shattered life. Ellie, I saw a text come in uh, when we were on that short break. And <laughs> you're ready for this? The, the, the person basically says, I, I need to understand more of what's happened. Uh, the healing talk can come later. <laughs> 
So I know in, in recovery, there's, a, and this is, I'm talking about addiction here, there's a concept of hitting bottom. I'm going to ask you to go first so I can you know, gird myself for having to say anything more on my side. But can you talk a little bit about what hitting bottom meant for you? Yeah. Um, I actually thought about that when we started the, the, the questioner's question about starting at the end, but I actually think it's important sometimes to plant a seed of possibility of what is possible for someone who's gone through um, unbearable pain. And I think, you know, in many ways, when I look at your story, what's inspiring to me is that I don't know how I would have handled things had I encountered them as an adult the way you did, right? So I experienced things as a as a child, although addiction, to a de- there, there obviously was an element in hitting bottom an addiction. Uh, hitting bottom is not an absolute, um, if this happens, someone will necessarily hit bottom. Hit bottom, I've heard someone say, you know, when do you hit bottom when you stop digging? Hmm. And uh, the way I understand that to mean is hitting bottom is really a shattering of denial, which is one of the most painful experiences is when a, uh, the feeling of being disillusioned in some way. We, we believed something for a period of time, especially about ourselves, about our own identity, and we find, that, we find out that that wasn't true. That's very, very painful. And for me, uh, my bottom came in the form of actually realizing that I had a, a problem like addiction. And the reason why it was so hidden to me was because you know, when, when you're dealing with porn addiction or anything in the process addictions, an eating disorder or a, um, a, a, a sex addiction, porn being included in there, it doesn't quite manifest itself, and it's not as obvious to the people around you and even oneself as a drug or alcohol addiction or even gambling, which are often synonymous with addiction. When someone is doing any of those things too much, the first question someone will ask is, Hey, is he addicted to, to alcohol? You see someone drunk a number of times. That, that kind of becomes obvious, whereas a lot of other things aren't so closely associated with addiction to the point that some professionals will even say, oh, you can't be addicted to that. There's no such thing as being addicted to food, or there's no such thing as being addicted to shopping or being addicted to sex or being addicted to, to pornography. These things don't really exist in the same way someone can be addicted to heroin or cocaine or alcohol. Right. And obviously that's not true, and it's not true for me, but that lie sat there for a while thinking, I'm not addicted because I didn't have a problem with alcohol, I didn't have a problem with drugs, I didn't have a problem uh, with gambling. As a matter of fact, in order to keep the lie going, I really stayed away from all those things. I hated being drunk, I disliked drugs strongly, I disliked gambling because my sense was I'm in control and those are loss of control. Mm-hmm. What I didn't realize is I had a backdoor into the addiction world, and that was um, porn, porn addiction slash sex addiction. And once, once that became clear to me, there was a, uh, identity, a part of myself that completely shattered this denial that I couldn't hide behind anymore. And, uh, it was, uh, the, the pain was unbearable. And another part of the pain in order to get to that realization, one has to commit to trying to stop something. And the demoralization that sets in, when as a human being you say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and you realize that you're completely incapable of that of your own accord without going through help, either therapy or 12 steps or other 
food or rehab, when someone notices that, it's unbelievably demoralizing to find out that you're not, uh, for me, that I wasn't in control of my circumstances and including myself, my own behaviors, as much as I thought. Ellie, the, one of the titles, the subtitle of this show is to Finding Meaning in a Shattered Life. Do you feel broken at where you are now in life or do you feel whole? Did you get, did you kind of get shattered and then you picked up the pieces and put them back together successfully or is it a acceptance or a constant state of being broken? It's certainly not a constant state of being broken. No, I think that a lot of it is, uh, I'm, I'm looking for the right word, but it's like integrating the different aspects of one's life, aligning it in some way. Where one of the things about addiction, I was talking to, to someone yesterday, uh, actually earlier in the week, who's a rabbi who struggles with porn addiction, ironically, and a practicing rabbi. And he said to me that he felt like he was lying in some way, the fact that he had this addiction. And I was encouraging him to look at it differently and said that unless the, the addiction would, the behavior would only constitute an addiction if it was incompatible with who you are. There's this 98% of you that functions, that's normal, that sees the world clearly, and then there's this little box where we're, that's just out of control. It's not aligned with us in some way. If there was zero shame, there would be no addiction. If there was zero regret, zero desire to stop, there would be no addiction. There would just be a behavior that's in the, that fits, that's congruent, that's aligned with the person's life. In right, this be, case, he's trying no to stop. He can't the, stop. the problem. Right, there would be no issue. So, in in my life, what I've tried to do, and through recovery, and what I think recovery is, right, the word recovery suggests that we're trying to find something that was lost. It's not a new thing, it's an old thing that we're trying to get back, and that old thing is ourselves. We're trying to recover back to who we are as people, align all of us together. And one of the reasons why I spoke about porn addiction specifically is because when there's a feeling of shame around any parts of us, either our story or who we are, there's this not, like you described, that forces us to hide the rest of ourselves, which is the same thing that happened with you with the radio show, right? Now now you're doing a radio show because it would have been really tough to do that when you had to hide, when you felt you had to hide a part of yourself. There was this shame around an area of your life that was unresolved. That, for me, was porn addiction where I'd resolved and certain things came into alignment, I felt whole, like this makes sense, but the porn addiction brought me particular shame. The fact that it was an addiction to something like porn, and that bothered me tremendously, and I learned the secret to shame. The secret to shame is to talk about it and to find meaning through it, and I cannot count the amount of people who've reached out to me over the years, over the two years, a year and a half that I'm talking about pornography addiction, and said, thank you so much. You got me started on my journey because this has been kicking my ass also. I have had a similar experience, and I and I am not going to avoid the listener's uh, question there or, or, I guess, request to be more open. You, you talked about recovering something that we had before. And I relate to that very much in, in the way that my life came apart. I... Also, had a narrative. You talked about your your narrative of of being a 
uh, you know, a happy young boy, and then then things happen along the way, and, and reassessing that narrative. And my narrative was that I had a charmed life. You know, I went to Harvard, I started companies, and took them public, and you know, lived around the world, and had a, a beautiful little daughter, and and you know, obviously with uh, ups and downs, downs as well as those ups along the way. But in general, I had a, a narrative that you know things things were going well, and I kind of had some sort of um, some sort of Midas touch, with exceptions, and then, uh, you know, I, I I was arrested in um, September 2015, uh, related to a public company. A uh, number of years prior, a software company where I was accused of being involved in in accounting issues at that company, and it's. But the the thing is, I was uh, I was arrested when I was on a business trip overseas, and. The long and the short of that is that I ended up in this weird limbo state where I was um, in "quote unquote" administrative detention, but I was in uh, really a prison in, in South America, several prisons, and um, and everything all of a sudden came apart at once. Like the narrative came apart. This was not something that was just a temporary down. My reputation was uh, destroyed. Uh, and then the environment that I was in was uh, something that uh, I never, you know, um, even could conceive of. Uh, it was, you know, in, you know, packed into the third world um, prison with, you know, dirt floors in one of them and another one had <laughs> running water 20 minutes a day. Uh, just constant battle for... Uh, survival, literally survival, day to day, um, uh, and it was. I mean, I, I had a, I was, I had a, a cellmate that um, was a, a, an addict as well, and was incredibly dangerous. He was a uh, an assassin who had been. He was in, accused of eighteen or nineteen murders or something. It was just, it was just a, a, almost like out of a movie, but um, a, a, you know, a horror movie where you're a character and. Uh, so the recovery for me has been just, has not been, and I, I wonder if this is true for you, Ellie, it's not been some illusion of recovering some sort of pristine innocence or recovering my reputation so that I'm now seen as like a successful entrepreneur, uh, as opposed to, yeah, that guy who was in prison and, and who was raped in prison. Um, but it, it's just kind of been a, a process of recovery of, uh, feeling day to day, like I got my shit together. <laughs> like I, I can actually um, uh, receive love. I can um, be in healthy relationships. I don't have to be in fear of kind of being discovered um, in terms of my, you know, my past and things that have gone through. It's been like I, I want to make sure that uh, that folks that are listening and can relate to their life being shattered don't confuse what we're saying, or at least what I'm saying, is that, you know, recovery is um, everything being fine again. Like, I'm, that's why I asked you a question about whether you're still broken. I still feel broken, but I feel like there's some sort, like the sutures themselves of the pieces being put back together form a mosaic that I'm okay with now, that I can, okay, talking about on the radio with. I'm okay with talking about someone that I would want to be intimate with in my life, emotionally or physically, that I can you know, talk about it. It doesn't mean that the the fracture lines aren't there. The, I am a broken vessel, but I put 
I put myself back together and I'm okay exposing the places where those pieces have been put to, put back together. I don't know if that makes sense to you, Ali, or to the folks that are listening and want to participate. Yeah, it's an interesting, um, you know, the use of words, and maybe we're saying the same thing, maybe we're not, uh, but one way I would challenge it is, you know, we are on equal footing, so if I'm pushing it a little bit is then if if there's still a part of you that feels broken, right, which I understand that the, the underlying issue that shattered us doesn't always get resolved, right? What I spoke right. about was learning that I'm an addict. Um, recovery didn't teach me that I'm not an addict, right? That belief about myself that I'm an addict was very damaging to my identity. One of the keywords um, that that I picked up on in your prior um, point you made about your story in prison was the word reputation. And I can't imagine the pain of losing one's reputation, especially as an entrepreneur and someone in business, is our reputation is our value. It's more than our bank account, right. our reputation, in a lot of ways. And recovery is not restoring our reputation as much as it is, as much as it is realizing that our, our identity is not our reputation and we could be okay without a perfect and pristine reputation. And while reputation was not quite my experience, that's what I understand about recovery. And for my own process is not that it, not that the underlying issue gets resolved as much as the underlying issue collapses into who we are as a person. And maybe we find meaning and purpose specifically in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's an, it's an ongoing narrative. I think there's the illusion of that. You're going to kind of hit the reset button and go back to another narrative. No, we, we have gone through what, to give credit where credit is due, the name of the show, uh, Broken Open, Finding uh, Meaning in a Shattered Life. Broken Open comes from a book by Elizabeth Lesser, who uh, was a co-founder of Omega Institute and talks about the Phoenix process, about like going to ashes, basically dying, hitting bottom in recovery language, and then the Phoenix rising. But the Phoenix rising is not what existed before whatever died before went to ashes. The Phoenix doesn't die <laughs> and then reemerge as a Phoenix something else dies and the phoenix is what reemerges. And so the phoenix process, as Elizabeth Lesser talks about, I'm really a fan of that book, so we use that in the title of the show, it, it's acknowledging that it's a new narrative, it's a new you. And I guess my point was it for those who are dealing with uh, trauma and unveiling secrets and untangling that inner knot, the, the you on the other side of that can be broken and beautiful at the same time. That doesn't, they aren't, um, mutually exclusive. Participate in our conversation. I'm on the air with Ellie Nash, who is a friend. I think he he his on his own hero's journey has exp- uh, inspired many others through his organization, Mike Trop, which encourages public speaking around difficult issues. He's also a successful entrepreneur and philanthropist. You can join in in the conversation at 718-303-9090, calling in live or you can text a question to 917-428-4062. Ali, we, we got another text question, which I'm going to go to before our next break. This, this is an anonymous uh, 
listener, you guys are speaking bravely about huge issues of abuse and violation and personal challenge, and yet you have been able to speak and fight back and reveal your stories. But there are so many who struggle deeply with shame about issues that feel so much lighter, and yet they're still crippled in that shame. How do you turn the shame at any level, large or small, into the ability to actually face it and overcome? I know it's a big question. Insights appreciated. You want to take that? Yeah, I think I could. Um, I think I could take this because there's a way that all of us um, minimize our experience, our pain. I, I, I really like a line uh, from Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, where he says, Pain is like a gas. It fills up all available resources or crevices. It just goes everywhere. And, and he said, and therefore, pain is, is relative, right? When someone is in pain, they're consumed by that pain. And it's very important not to compare and contrast pain. And in my case, the, uh, the, the way I minimize my experience, on the one hand, okay, I was sexually abused. On the other hand, I wasn't raped. Um, that wasn't that wasn't my experience. I wasn't raped. It was, you know, also I was, um, the person who abused me was a teenager and I was a child. And I said, okay, that also for some reason shouldn't be as bad. And when I heard other people's stories, maybe they were abducted and raped. And I was like, wow, that's much worse than I experienced. I don't, how can I speak about my challenge? How can I, uh, um, bring this up, or if I heard someone talking about there's a team bigger, I was like, wow, this is bringing me shame when theirs isn't, and it's just another way to, to introduce shame. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is, at this point, um, I think it's very important, is that the fact that my abuser was a teenager was something that forced me to minimize, that um, convinced me to minimize the story when I spoke about it to anyone, whether it was family or in therapy or, work, or, or working on it. And eventually, when I brought that to light um, in a public setting, and I said one of the one of the excuses I gave myself, or one of the reasons I told myself that I I don't have a right to share my story, is because maybe it wasn't as painful as others because of, because it was it being a teenager. And one day I realized that if I'm stabbed in the back, it doesn't matter how old the person <laughs> um, was who was holding the knife. Or if someone fires a rocket, it doesn't matter if it's a teenager or a child or an adult who fires a rocket. The rocket will do the damage it does, and I just have to look at what damage it did for me and look at that, look at that objectively and address that. That point that I made in speeches um, had more people coming to me than any single point I made. And the reason I say that is I don't know if it was the point as much as it was the specific shame wrapped around the point. And when I was uncorking that shame and releasing it, other people heard it in the same way, and that's what resonated. And I think that that is the, the secret that I've learned about shame is that shame doesn't survive in sunlight. It doesn't survive in connection. Because <laughs> the lie of shame is <laughs> the lie of shame is that I'm not worthy of connection. That's, if someone knew this about me, they wouldn't want to be my friend. They wouldn't love me. They wouldn't accept me. And the antidote to it is to speak to someone about it and then connect over it. And when that happens, the shame dissolves. It's like it's not there. Right. We all that's have like it's shame. no longer there. Yeah. I say, I'm sorry to, to, to have interrupted you, I said, uh, man, because 
I, I didn't quite understand that, Ellie, until I actually did the mic drop talk. And even though I had kind of, you know, the, what had happened had been brought out in court papers. And, you know, my friends, my close friends and family knew that I had, uh, you know, I, I say, I can, I'm finally at a point in my life where I can just say I had been raped as opposed to, you know, kind of put it in, um, in, in, in more, uh, you know, roundabout language. And, but when I finally started to talk about it, it's you, everybody is carrying shame. And that last listener's point about kind of effectively the relativity of shame in a certain sense is an illusion because we, whatever shame we're carrying is incredibly important to, to, to us. And so I think it's like almost like it's like a, a it's a dosage perhaps, but it's of the same virus and, and it doesn't survive in sunlight. So I, for those of you who haven't, even thought about doing this, I encourage you to, to, in some way, take those steps to talk about it with a therapist, with a friend, with a family member, anonymously on a show like this, or, you know, however, start the start the process, start the journey. We'll be right back uh, on equal footing with my guest Ellie Nash talking about being broken open, finding meaning in a shattered life. Like a small boat. On the ocean, sending big waves into motion, like how a single word can make a heart open. I might only have one match, but I can make an explosion. Tonight's program of Equal Footing is brought to you by Mechanical Arts Capital. Mechanical Art Capital offers financing to watch collectors and watch dealers from anywhere in the world. Unlock the cash value of your watch collection or inventory through Mechanical Art Capital's guaranteed buyback contracts. For more information, call 833-209-0972. Again, that's 833-209-0972. Operators are standing by. Mechanical Arts Capital funds are wired to you quickly and discreetly in two business days or less. Your timepieces are stored in a secure location in Manhattan, New York, and you can have your watches back when you are ready. Safe and simple. Contact Mechanical Art Capital at 833-209-0972. I've been caught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on and I've been taught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on You're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tusman. I'm here with my guest, Ellie Nash. We're talking about being broken, open, finding meaning in a shattered life. Ellie, before we left for the break, we were talking about kind of the relativity of shame, the fact that shame cannot live in sunlight when you open up about it. I'm going to tackle something around this area of your life coming apart and the journey of accepting and opening up around our our trauma and our our challenges. I don't know if it's devil's advocacy or it's something that bothers me that I do think sometimes. And it, it's this concept, I guess, of do we need to actually have enormous pain or challenges in our life to actually live a full life? So Joseph Campbell, who uh, was a, a great philosopher and kind of talked about the importance of, of myth in our collective uh, consciousness and our individual journey, talked about the hero's journey 
the, this call to adventure that we actually have to be faced with an enormous challenge in life that if we succeed our life is transformed and if we fail to face the challenge our life is not you know even Nietzsche uh, the philosopher you know talked about the fact that you need to embrace your own evil in order to 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 grow and these this strain of thought goes back thousands of years that were like called to a challenge that were you know the old god doesn't give you more than you can handle and there's a part of me that jives with that because that calling out to that type of logic is what helped me survive what I've gone through in my life. But then there's a part of me that wants to call bullshit on it <laughs> and, and say, like, well, what? I mean, you, you, there are plenty of people that, that, that go through life without that level of, of challenge. So why? And I apologize, by the way, for the echo. I'm not sure what's going on from an uh, audio perspective here. I can hear it on my side. But what is uh, – do you agree, Ellie? I mean, do, do you – is this hero's journey, as Joseph Campbell says it, which already gives a positive spin to it, necessary to live a full life? I'll tell you what. There's a part of me that's torn on this point. But I, I can tell you one thing I found through Mic Drop from hearing a lot of different stories is that people's realizations come in different ways. And sometimes it's not as profound as some of the stories, as, as deep or as painful or as obviously painful as some of what we've been talking about. And, you know, you gave an early example when you talked about pain, which I liked and think fits well with this, and that's heartbreak, which someone falls in love and something goes wrong in that. That's mm-hmm. not, you, you wouldn't put that in the same category as someone being arrested and raped but it could be transformational and that may be Joseph Campbell hero's journey moment when someone goes through heartbreak or loss. These are the everyday parts of life that we're all going to experience if we're living. And I would like to think that it doesn't take these profound, this kind of uh, pain. I mean, just as someone with uh, a few children, I would not want to believe that in order for them to be self-actualized, they would have to go through this level of pain though. Yeah, right. We never would wish this on our children. So what has been, in your experience with Mic Drop, and you feel free to give a plug on that because I think it would probably be a growthful opportunity for, for many of our listeners. How do you assess whether it is healthy? Is it always healthy for someone to tell their innermost story of pain or do you kind of turn people away sometimes? You, but by the time you get on the stage... You want to um, have a fair amount of the shame resolved. And when we're talking about it in the earlier segment, I was thinking that someone could be mishearing what we're saying. And it's not recommending that if someone has shame, they speak publicly or even to the first person that's there. What we want to do is go to someone who has an almost guarantee (laughs) uh, that they will not respond with with shame to it and i'll tell you an example that comes to mind you know how often do we hear that some anti-gay activist is a closeted gay man right the the, this is just the hitler was a jew argument let let, let's use that one a version of that there's just right there's this um what's what's happening there is It's almost classic, right? Someone is passionately, vehemently anti-gay, 
and then we find out. I actually just read an article yesterday about someone, I think it was in New Zealand, who was trying to pass all sorts of anti-gay legislation and was caught in a um, home with group sex, 25 other men or something, and was busted, and he was there. And, I mean, how many times have we seen stories like that? So what's happening there is someone has their own unresolved shame around this issue, and they're projecting it onto the whole world. So if someone was struggling with that specific issue, it would be not a good idea to speak to someone else. Like, that would be the worst person to talk to, right, the anti-gay activist, if someone's trying to work through shame on this particular issue. And the opposite of that would be someone who's come to the other side of that, and we know that they've come to the other side of that. And that's a subtle invitation that I make by giving a TED Talk on porn addiction to many people is that, hey, I am someone who's resolved my shame around porn addiction, so if you want to start with me, feel free to. And start with me doesn't necessarily mean a phone conversation. Sometimes it's an anonymous um, Instagram message or an anonymous Facebook message where someone will create an account specifically for the purpose of messaging me but what they're, what they're guaranteed, a virtual guarantee, is that I'll respond in a way that doesn't have shame. And that's what I'll always encourage someone, is whatever their area of shame is, if you Google that, if you research it, you're going to find someone who's had that issue who's addressed it. Alcohol addiction, grief, loss, rape, imprisonment, and then send them a message. They don't have to be someone you know, and they usually will understand the pain and shame around it, and that can be the first step. And slowly build from there. Each step is another leap. And eventually, being able to speak it in front of a full room of people, and we don't even know where it's going to go, putting it on YouTube like you did, is where it removes all the power, but certainly not starting there. Yeah, and you you did that for me, both being open to talk about it with you and also with the coach that that you helped me find Arnold Rodriguez, who is, who is amazing. So Ellie, where can people who are listening find you? And I'll, you know, I'll say anyone can text me at any point to talk about their own journey. And you can do that anonymously at 917-428-4062. Ellie, where can people reach you along the same lines? The most common is Instagram. That's where I'll get most messages. Uh, my Instagram handle is my full name, Eliyahu, E-L-I-Y-A-H-U. Again, E-L-I-Y-A-H-U underscore Nash. And I'll get messages from people all the time uh, that have seen my talk or have encountered me in some other way, like a talk like this and want to say something. And it won't usually turn into a long conversation, but a few messages back and forth should hopefully release something. And maybe I'll have a specific answer to a question they have around a specific struggle. Yeah, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Another text here, Ellie, uh, that is really digging in on this ac- issue of the exit from from shame. That it's um, I'm going to kind of abbreviate the the common question, but about um, how to find an exit from shame that isn't talking about it publicly. And we've talked here about finding one person doesn't have to be publicly finding one person that you can open up about it. I would like to share some of the um, books and, and resources that have helped in, in my life uh, the, the eponymously because the, the show is called Broken Open Finding Meaning in a Shattered Life the book Broken Open 
the subtitle of that book is How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow by Elizabeth Lesser is a great place to start. There's a book by Pema Chodron, who I've mentioned as well, comes at things from a little kind of a Zen perspective called When Things Fall Apart. You mentioned Viktor Frankl, which is my single favorite. My single favorite book is, is Man's Search for Meaning, um, the writings of, of Joseph Campbell and, and, and others. Ellie, we're going to take one more break, and we'll be we'll be back on equal footing in a moment to uh, conclude and and challenge ourselves to take the position, perhaps, that one should stay bottled up about their own uh, brokenness. We'll be right back on equal footing. Are you a small or medium-sized business owner who wants to provide a low-cost, effective health benefit for your employees, or a school administrator who wants to ensure all of your students have the proper vaccines? Maybe you're just a parent trying to keep your family's medical records up to date. Well, welcome to DocuVax, an easy-to-use digital locker accessible on your laptop or smartphone that allows you to safely store and validate with doctors basic medical information like immunization records, lab results, even x-rays and MRIs. Gone are the days of losing time tracking down old medical records or sharing test results with a new healthcare provider. The DocuVax system covers over 60 different important elements of your medical profile, from flu and tetanus and, God willing, soon COVID vaccines to colorectal and breast cancer screenings to blood type and allergies. Sign up. Go to www.docuvax.com or call 833-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. I've been You're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tusman. We're here with Ellie Nash, successful entrepreneur, philanthropist, survivor of childhood childhood sexual abuse, porn addiction as an adult, and a believer that telling your innermost story has tremendous healing power. Ellie, I have been struggling on on this show to challenge you with something that you haven't addressed openly before because you have been an example to many in opening up completely about your most difficult points in your life journey. And as you said, shame can't survive sunlight. So bravo to that. If you took the other side, and I know you have confronted and dealt with points of view along the way with JCW and with Mic Drop, where people probably have said that you have encouraged dialogues that shouldn't be taking place or encouraged disclosures that shouldn't be taking place. But if you were to genuinely take the other side, how would you argue that's that the better path with our deepest pain our darkest moments our deepest shame is to kind of keep it compartmentalized like almost you know put it away and and hope to that it that it would pass is is there is there a, a legitimate argument to taking that that approach the the legitimacy to the argument um, that I see and is that none of this is without risk. 
the what what happens with shame is it's pro- like any fear, right? It's protecting us in some way. So it's protecting us from what it believes is the possibility of a much worse outcome. I don't cross the street because I, I'm a, I have a fear of crossing the street because the much worse outcome is that I get hit by a car. The in in the case of shame, there is a fear, right? There's there are many people and. We see it almost as a social currency today, more than any other, uh, is shame. And public shaming is, is, you know, especially in the last 10 or 15 years, the way we're comfortable destroying someone in an Internet or social media way, it, because the, the individual isn't in front of us, it's dangerous. And there are certainly risks associated with, with this. So from a public standpoint, absolutely. And I can tell you that um, almost every time I stretch myself, I there, there are elements of regret that sit in for a little while. And the most recent, the most recent main one, because I do this in small ways all the time, but the most recent main one was speaking about uh, doing a TED Talk called Escaping Porn Addiction, and two months later I see that it got released on the Internet. And my first thought is that my son, who was only one year old, one, my, my oldest child, only one year old at the time, that when he's in high school, he's going to be bullied mercilessly over this. Right. And there was this, like, oh, shit, what did I do feeling that came over me. Hopefully this is a radio show where I can say that word. And when, when that came over me, uh, stayed with me for a couple of days until the first person reached out and said, thank you so much for telling talk, and this is how it helped me. I've been stuck for a while, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I decided I'm going to live without porn, and that's when it started to loosen it. The other part of it is that I said, um, my goal now is that I'm, I'm able to change the conversation around porn, and now I have a date. The date is when my child is old enough, probably middle school, that his classmates can start, you know, bringing this up to him. Hey, your dad does what? Your dad spoke about what? Ha, ha, ha. Hopefully between now and then I can change that. 30 years ago, something similar would have been said about alcohol addiction, and that wouldn't be the case today. So hopefully I can be a part of making that change. So my point is is that this is not without risk. Uh, So certainly, certainly from a public setting. I do believe strongly that one person in the world should know everything about us. Not one person should know everything about us. Everything about us should be known by at least one person. There could be hundreds of people combined, and between them they know everything, but we need to be able to speak, and that I could not make that argument. I couldn't sit for, I couldn't make a position, I couldn't take a position that, a part of us should not be shared with another human being. I, I would disagree with that. Story. And there's 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 also risk in in not speaking in the sense that you can spend your life kind of climbing up the wrong path. Uh, there's a, my favorite Joseph Campbell quote is that the real crisis is not that you'll have a loss of life or loss of self, but it's what happens when you climb to the top of the ladder and discover it's against the wrong wall. <laughs> so it's like what? if you're scaling, you spend your whole life trying to deal with one issue. If you don't open up about it, you might, I, that happened in my journey. I went you know level to level to level and got you know deeper and deeper. Ellie, thank you for joining us uh, in this episode of, of Equal Footing. I appreciate you, your openness, and your encouraging others to be open and grow. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thanks again for having me. Have a great night, everybody. God bless. Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we can walk it out. Move mountains, we can walk it out. And